Welcome to episode 21, our seasonal recommendation show. I'm Casey, and today I'm joined in the studio by Jessica, Jenna, Victoria, and Courtney. We have some new voices this season as the staffing of the office has changed lately. We wished Jessica and Marie a good farewell in their new journey as they transition out of the office, and we welcome our new advocacy team. Victoria will now be with us full-time in the office, and we are adding Jenna and Courtney as new advocates. I want to give them a chance to introduce themselves here so you know a little bit about them. Hey, my name is Courtney. I was born here in beautiful Colorado. I earned my bachelor's degree in human development and family studies with a minor in criminal justice from CSU. I have been connected with the WGAC since 2017. I identify as a biracial woman of color who is passionate about supporting survivors and creating social change. As an advocate, I strive to cultivate an environment where survivors can feel comfortable and safe. It is an honor to be a part of a survivor's journey to healing. It is important to me that I not only provide support to folks who utilize our resources, but also continue to grow, learn, and combat against rape culture. During my free time, I enjoy live music, road trips, along with spending time with family and friends. Hey everyone, my name is Jenna and I joined the WGAC as a victim advocate in early August 2019. I am a cis, queer, biracial woman of color and before moving to CSU, I worked at the University of Utah helping women stay enrolled in school and finding resources to support their success. I became involved in gender advocacy through my undergraduate studies in environmental and sustainability studies as well as my graduate work in higher education and student affairs. These opportunities taught me to critically examine how systems of power exploit marginalized folk and leverage my power and privilege to change the situation through solidarity and advocacy. My approach to advocacy is rooted in intersectional feminism and social justice. When working with survivors, I believe that we build our understanding of reality together and work to ensure that your power and control are honored. When I'm not at work, I spend time cooking, quilting, and loving on my cat, Cleo. Thank you both and welcome. So with that, we'll slide into the recommendations we have for you this season. And I will be talking about Hunger, A Memoir of My Body by Roxane Gay. This is a book that had a profound impact on me. I didn't really know what to expect, but I knew I loved Gay's feminist writing style from reading her other books, including Difficult Women and Bad Feminist. Additionally, I knew that this book was about her relationship with her body. And having been heavy for most of my life, I thought I would find some connection with this book. I did find that connection, just not in the ways I was expecting. A quote from the beginning of the book really helps to set the stage for the content to follow. It reads, What you need to know is that my life is split in two, cleaved not so neatly. There is the before and the after. Before I gained weight and after I gained weight. Before I was raped and after I was raped. The rest of the book is the story of the before and the after. One of the things that constantly shakes me about Roxanne Gay's way of writing is the way it makes me feel like she's punching me in the stomach. It's in your face. There are no euphemisms. Her language isn't flowery. Because trauma isn't flowery. It hurts. She doesn't sugarcoat the story. Her story, like the ones I hear every day in my office, aren't made of sugar. They are made of pain confusion, and heartbreak. As a whole, we rarely talk so bluntly and blatantly about what actually happens during an assault and about what it feels like after. 
By not naming the hurt, we allow the abusers to keep control. Well, Roxanne Gay has a big middle finger to all of that. She is taking the control back, and I love the power that comes from this. Knowing this, I will say that this is an incredibly hard book to read, in part because of the wide open way she tells her story, and also in part because of the raw way she tells the story of her after. Most of the people I talk to who have read this book say that they read it in doses, that it was really hard to sit down and read for long periods of time. That's totally okay. Read at your own pace. But this can be a really healing read at the same time. It can be healing because she talks about her struggle in ways that not many people are able to express. Reading her words can help you know that you are not alone in your struggle. She writes that, Not thinking about it, her assault, didn't work. So I'm talking about it now. You can almost hear how much she wants this pain to dissipate. And this is part of how I connected so deeply with her words. I felt comfort in knowing that others are experiencing this longing for violence to end and the pain to stop. It isn't that I want this to happen to others, but that the ways in which I deal with the hurt aren't all that different. That feeling of wanting to hide away from the hurt is common and I find solace in that. She also writes about how she copes. I'll quote her here with, I was swallowing my secrets and making my body expand and explode. I found ways to hide in plain sight, to keep feeding a hunger that could never be satisfied, the hunger to stop hurting. I made myself bigger. I made myself safer. She talks about how she intentionally put on weight to make herself more unattractive to others, to keep the attention off of her and her body. And I hear this story from so many survivors, the story of deep change after an assault that makes people want to make the outside match with their feeling on the inside. In addition to this, this controlling one's weight, either by overeating or undereating, is a way, is a way to reestablish control when the control has been taken away from them. She understands the pull between desire and denial, between self-comfort and self-care. I'll end here with one last quote from the book, which I read as a call to arms for women, and one that Roxane Gay says over and over again as a thread throughout all of her writing. I began aiming to change my body. Some boys had destroyed me, and I barely survived it. I knew I wouldn't be able to endure another such violation, and so I ate because I thought that if my body became repulsive, I could keep men away. Even at that young age, I understood that to be fat was to be undesirable to men, to be beneath their contempt, and I already knew too much about their contempt. This is not what most girls are taught that we should be slender and small. We should not take up space. We should be seen and not heard. And if we are seen, we should be pleasing to men, acceptable to society. And most women know this, that we are supposed to disappear. But it's something that needs to be said loudly over and over again so that we can resist surrendering to what is expected of us. Thank you so much for sharing that resource, Casey. Hunger sounds like an empowering book, and it's on my reading list. Now, since I'm talking about parenting this season, I thought it would be fitting to talk about fairy tales. 
Just like many of you, I grew up with Disney and other animated fairy tales. I loved these movies, and some of them, especially newer tales like Moana, Brave, or Frozen, offer refreshing takes on women's empowerment and strength. I'm not trying to bash these beloved movies, and there's nothing wrong with appreciating them, but it can help to keep certain things in mind when consuming this form of media. For example, many of these movies showcase men as heroes and women as catty villains or helpless princesses. They are overwhelmingly heteronormative with instances of non-consensual behavior and interpersonal violence. For example, in both Sleeping Beauty and Snow White, the prince kisses a sleeping princess, which is termed as an acceptable, quote, love's first kiss. In both cases, the princess awakens and appreciates that she was kissed by her handsome prince while she was unconscious. However, this actually teaches children that it is acceptable and even desirable for men to perform non-consensual acts on an unconscious woman. This can be damaging as children grow because they may carry these messages into their intimate adult lives, which can cause confusion, pain, and a lot of other hard things to happen. Also, these films are in some cases blatantly stereotypical and racist. For example, in The Lion King, Scar is the villain, and he's the only dark brown lion in the pride. Similarly, Jafar from Aladdin has darker skin than anyone else in the film, and he's really the only character that isn't necessarily white passing. These are examples that uphold racist ideology that brown people are villains and lighter-hued people are the heroes, the princesses, and the kings. All of these examples of Disney movies reinforce social norms in the minds of children, like stereotypical and heteronormative gender roles, rape culture, and white supremacy. While I've only chosen a few of the many examples of movies to talk about with no particular order of importance, know that these are only a few examples of racist and sexist representation in children's movies. But there are some amazing books out there that tell our beloved fairy tales in a different light. One of these books is called Kissing the Witch, Old Tales in New Skins. This collection of 13 tales was written in 1997 by Irish author Emma Donoghue, but it still has a great deal of significance in the modern day. In the book, Emma tells many of the stories we know and love, like Sleeping Beauty and Beauty and the Beast, as well as other stories I'd never heard before. All of the stories are interconnected with one another, which adds a super cool element to the tales in this book. However, the most incredible part of this collection is how Emma reimagines fairy tales in new and beautiful ways. There are no men that save women in this book. They are the ones that save themselves and each other. Some of the women in the fairy tales realize that even charming men can deny them their freedom and that others are not to be trusted. Some of the women are in queer relationships and still others choose to live alone, isolated from the world. Also, all of the women in the book tell their own stories instead of having men narrate for them. I'm looking at you, Tangled. An online description of the book says, quote, Cinderella forsakes the handsome prince and runs off with the fairy godmother. Beauty discovers the beast behind the mask is not so very different from the face she sees in the mirror. Snow White is awakened from slumber by the bittersweet fruit of an unnamed desire. In these fairy tales, women young and old tell their own stories of love and hate, honor and revenge, passion and deception, end quote. 
Another great collection of fairy tales is the 2018 book called Fierce Fairy Tales, Poems and Stories to Stir Your Soul. This book was written by Nikita Gill, an Indian Sikh writer who describes herself as, quote, a 24-year-old madness who likes to write short stories that are, kind of like her, barely there, end quote. Not only is she a brilliant writer, the illustrations in Fierce Fairy Tales were hand-drawn by Nikita herself. An online description of this book says, quote, In this rousing new prose and poetry collection, Nikita Gill gives Once Upon a Time a much-needed modern makeover. Through her gorgeous reimagining of fairy tale classics and spellbinding original tales, she dismantles the old-fashioned tropes that have been ingrained in our minds. In this book, gone are the docile women and male saviors. Instead, lines blur between heroes and villains. You will meet fearless princesses, a new kind of wolf lurking in the concrete jungle, and an independent Gretel who can bring down monsters on her own. End quote. Both of these books of fairy tales are beautifully written and empowering, helping us dismantle outdated stereotypical notions of who women are, what they are capable of, and whom they can choose to love. Now, there's no easy transition from talking about empowering fairy tales to trauma in the body, so we'll just dive right into Jessica's recommendation for this season. So some of you might remember that back in season one's recommendation show, I talked about a fantastic book called The Body Keeps the Score by Bessel van der Kolk. It's one of my go-to books on the neurobiology of trauma and how we hold trauma in our bodies and nervous systems. Well, my other go-to book about this topic is Waking the Tiger by Peter Levine. This is a book that gets you thinking about our relationship to animals and the way animals process traumatic experiences. Peter Levine has done a good amount of research on how animals respond to trauma and how this can inform our approach to healing. I think this framework does wonders for helping to normalize the way that we react to and process trauma, really drilling home the idea that so many of our symptoms can be traced back to our body's inability to discharge the traumatic experience we had, so we get perpetually stuck in fight, flight, or freeze mode. The book opens with Levine describing an impala being chased by a cheetah. He describes how some impalas survive by entering a frozen, immobile state. Thinking the impala to be dead, the cheetah drags it back to share it with its cubs. And leaving it alone for a moment, the impala comes to life and escapes. So yeah, Peter Levine touches upon the immobility response and how sometimes our instincts for survival can lead us to freeze. And this instinct can literally save our lives. So if you look back on your own experiences of interpersonal violence and struggle with the fact that you froze in the face of abuse, Remember that this response is instinctual. And Dr. Levine also highlights the fact that the impala, after its escape, will literally shake off the trauma by physically shaking. This is how it discharges the fight, flight, or freeze response to threat, resolving it and moving on with its life. But what Dr. Levine also highlights is that as human beings, we often don't resolve traumatic experiences in the same way that animals do. We have a higher level of reasoning than animals, and this is one area where this advancement in our biology doesn't serve us well. Our brains literally don't allow us to move through the natural trauma response in the way that we need to in order to discharge the traumatic experience. Our logic 
tends to interfere and get in the way. So we literally get stuck in the trauma response and it becomes our new reality, meaning that we're literally living in the past and re-experiencing our trauma constantly. This new reality includes a constant state of hypervigilance and hyperarousal, exaggerated emotional and startle responses, nightmares, abrupt mood swings, avoidance behaviors, and a drastically reduced ability to deal with any type of stress. Dr. Levine believes that we have built-in mechanisms for responding to and moving toward a natural resolution of trauma, and we must simply activate these mechanisms. He explains that we do this in large part by tuning into our felt sense, or bringing conscious awareness in the moment to our body's sensations and experiences. Trauma is like stuck energy. So when we become aware of the energy through our physical sensations, these sensations begin to change and shift, usually moving in the direction of a free flow of energy and vitality that releases the stuck trauma responses. So think of a time when maybe you had a really good sobbing cry and afterward you felt better, relieved somehow. Well, this energy that Peter Levine talks about can also refer to our emotions. When we have stuck emotions, they can literally lead to physical ailments and compound symptoms of trauma. Our brains tell us that it's not safe to let out emotions, in large part because we've been trained to see emotions as weakness. But part of resolving trauma and not remaining stuck in the past is letting go of what's stuck inside. So developing the felt sense and letting ourselves express emotion is a powerful way to do this. So if you geek out on how trauma relates to our bodies, just like I do, I'd highly recommend adding Waking the Tiger or any one of Peter Levine's books to your list. And do keep in mind that this book is similar to The Body Keeps the Score and that it can take some time to digest. So I'd recommend reading it piece by piece instead of all at once. Thanks for that recommendation, Jessica. It sounds like a great book for those wanting to understand the nature of trauma. Now that we understand a little more about trauma, we can dive into another book that talks about how rape culture shows up in society. My recommendation for this season is Asking for It, The Alarming Rise of Rape Culture and What We Can Do About It. This book was an easy read packed with a ton of good information. Harding dives right in by addressing the myths that uphold rape culture in Western society and how it has evolved over time. Harding does an awesome job at reminding us that the only person ever to blame for sexual violence is the perpetrator. Victims should never be held responsible, and there is no such thing as asking for it. For survivors of sexual violence. Harding urges readers to move away from the toxic mindset of victim blaming and to accept that rape has no excuses. In the first section of the book, Harding does an amazing job at debunking the obvious reactions many people have when it comes to sexual violence. She addresses changing the direction of blame for sexual assault from what the victim was doing towards the action of the perpetrator. As a culture, we should alter our thoughts by asking if the victim felt pressured, safe, or fully understood the entirety of the situation before asking if they were intoxicated, what they were wearing, or anything else that shifts the blame from the person who committed sexual assault. 
This book was published back in 2014, and Harding addresses the challenges with the 14th Amendment, specifically when it comes to Roe versus Wade. As I was reading this section, I realized how much Harding's work applies to the current day because my mind automatically jumped to what has recently happened in regards to the changes in legislation with women's reproductive rights in the United States. For example, rollback on reproductive rights in Alabama and other states, legislation that doesn't even make exemptions for victims of rape or incest, shows that we have not improved over the last five years. And as the social narrative often implies, women must carry the burden of other rapists' actions. Also, as highlighted many times throughout the book, it is hard to talk about change in rape culture without getting a little political. We cannot tackle the problem of sexual assault and sexual violence if we do not understand that rape is a crime often committed by the people around us, not by the hypothetical criminal like a stranger in the bushes. For example, last year, we saw Brett Kavanaugh appointed to the highest court in the land, even though three women accused him of sexual assault. Our president has also been accused of relationship violence and sexual assault by numerous women, but still holds, arguably, the most powerful position in the world. These examples highlight the reality of sexual assault and the people who commit it. Harding goes on to say, quote, as long as our image of a real rape victim is a still a naive, sexually inexperienced, able-bodied, middle-class white woman conked over the head and dragged into an alley by a large, gun-wielding brown man, other types of people who report rapes are at risk for not only being humiliated and degraded by invasive questioning and general aura of suspicion, but of being charged with crimes themselves. We know that about 98% of victims on college campuses know their perpetrator and crimes of sexual violence are underreported. So instead of creating a culture that further distances us from providing resources to survivors of sexual violence, Harding encourages us to educate ourselves and become part of the global conversation. We should not be afraid to discuss these issues with our friends and family. And we should call out problematic behavior when we see it happen. We should listen to survivors instead of passing judgment. And we must always remember that no one is asking for rape. Most importantly, we must teach young people the meaning of consent and what constitutes problematic behavior. It is possible, for example, to rape a partner or spouse. And yet many people don't understand this. Marital rape has been illegal in the U.S., since 1993, but some U.S. states still have marital rape exemptions, depending on several factors, like whether physical force was used or if a spouse was drunk when the assault occurred. However, no one deserves to be sexually assaulted, and marriage does not imply constant consent. Until we tackle misconceptions around sexual behavior and physical integrity, Harding says we won't break rape culture and survivors will continue to suffer. Asking for it is an excellent recommendation for folks who are new to the conversation and want to learn more. It is also a great option for survivors to offer to support people to help them better understand rape and rape culture. For those of us who are not new to this topic, Harding's work may be a good review. 
Either way, it is important to continue having this conversation in efforts to bring about social change. Thank you, Courtney. That's all for this episode of We Believe You, advocacy, resources, and healing around interpersonal trauma. Please remember that the WJC is here to provide support for all CSU students 24 hours a day, 365 days a year. To reach an advocate, you can call 970-492-4242. If you have feedback, thoughts, comments, questions, or want to be interviewed for the podcast, please email wgac at colostate.edu. That's W-G-A-C at C-O-L-O-S-T-A-T-E dot E-D-U. For more information about advocacy in the Women and Gender Advocacy Center, go to www.wgac.colostate.edu. You can also find the WGAC on Facebook, Instagram, and YouTube. A big thank you to Xavier Hadley for creating the music used in this podcast and to our partnership with KCSU here at Colorado State University. For more KCSU content, go to kcsufm.com. Thank you so much for listening.